Today, if you've grabbed the notes, you'll see we are talking about growth through suffering, really this theme of suffering throughout the narrative of Scripture and really how the Bible repeatedly, uh, repeatedly offers us not stories of how God's people live at ease or you know, live lives where everything is getting progressively better and things come easy. No, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, a theme starts to emerge that the people of God, in particular the people of God, are a suffering people. The people of God are suffering people, but their suffering, that's the good news, is never in vain. Uh, the people of God suffer, but our suffering is never in vain. In fact, suffering we're going to see today has the potential to completely transform us, to form us, and to grow us into the image of God we were created to be. That's why we called this talk Growth Through Suffering. Now, hear me out. Some of y'all may already be turning off in your mind uh, just hearing that title, Growth Through Suffering. Don't, don't talk to me about that. Don't talk to me about growth through suffering because it sounds like one of those Christian platitudes, you know, that shallow people will sort of throw at you or throw at someone uh, when they're talking to someone who's suffering. You know, they'll be like, oh man, I'm suffering. And they're like, oh, well, God is good. He's gonna teach you something marvelous through this. You know, God is sovereign. Don't ever say that to someone who's suffering. It's true, but it's, but it's cheap. It's heartless. It's shallow. You're just sort of taking their pain, the gravity of their pain. You're just sweeping it away with your hand. God's good. It's true, but it's, it's cheap. Christian platitudes don't help anyone, right? So I'm not interested today in giving you Christian platitudes. Hopefully instead, as we open our Bibles and look at a few of the various ways people have suffered and the effect that suffering had on them and the people around them will gain a worldview that sees suffering not simply as something to be avoided at all costs or some distraction from the good life you're trying to live. That's how we tend to view suffering. You know, here's our, here's our life path, our trajectory, and suffering only derails it. So therefore, to live a good life, you just have to, you know, dodge, and you've got to avoid suffering at all costs. We think that suffering ruins your life. It doesn't contribute to it. But that's not how this theme of suffering unfolds throughout the scriptures. So today, I hope to begin to consider a worldview where our suffering is purposeful, where it doesn't ruin us. On the contrary, God grows us and those around us through our suffering. And if you can believe it, God sometimes even redeems us through suffering. So that being said, as always, here's an outline. You see that on the top of your notes for our class today. We'll talk about the beginning of suffering. Figured that was a good place to start. And then these four different types of suffering, trial and error suffering, like in the life of Judah, sacrificial suffering, like in the life of Joseph, God-glorifying suffering that we see in the life of Job, and then dependent suffering, which is what we see in the nation of Israel. And then we'll talk about the suffering of Jesus, that those all culminate into, and then finally we'll end uh, with the end of suffering. Okay, sound good? Okay, so let's all take a nice, deep, cleansing breath and talk about suffering. The beginning of suffering. In the beginning... God's creation was not a place of suffering. Okay, it was a place filled with delight and rest and satisfaction. Suffering is what you experience when you lack delight and when you lack rest and when you lack satisfaction. But that's not how God created our world. And he placed mankind in this beautiful garden and mankind had everything. Even they get to walk with God in his perfect presence in the cool of the day. 
you know, the cool of the day, the things we will no longer know as summer continues. And mankind just lived in God's perfect presence. And therefore, we had life and we had satisfaction in God's provision of everything we needed. And so there's no, there's no starving in the garden and there's no sadness, nothing to take away from humanity's joy, no disease, no cancer, nothing to suck the life out of our bodies and no death. There's no death in God's presence, only life and eternal satisfaction. So that's how our world was created, but that's not the world we know today, right? And that's because mankind rejected this perfect world and its creator. And instead we chose to suffer as enemies of the author, author of life. And so we all know the story. God said to Adam and Eve, you know, the first humans, you can eat from all the trees that I've given to you. Look at all these trees I've given to you for food. Look, there's even one called the tree of life. That looks great. You should try that one. But don't, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But mankind did exactly that. Mankind wanted for themselves the knowledge of good and evil so they didn't have to submit to God for his definition of good and evil. So they attempt to overthrow God. They disobeyed the command and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and therefore disqualified themselves and us with them from the life-giving presence of God. And when you remove a person from the source of life, you get death. And when you remove someone from the source of all delight, you get pain. And when you remove someone from the source of rest, they experience stress. When you remove someone from all satisfaction, you get dissatisfaction and hardship. So remove humanity from God's presence and suffering is born. And that's the beginning of suffering. So just listen to God's description of some of the specific suffering mankind will inevitably face having disqualified themselves from his presence in Genesis 3, 16 through 18. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Notice that word. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That's the worst one. You're going to have to eat kale salads, okay? But honestly, that list isn't, it's pretty mundane, you know, considering all the suffering that follows. But the point of that list is not list all the ways that mankind will suffer. The point is mankind didn't listen to the word of God and they suffered as a result. You see that very clearly. You listen to the voice of your wife rather than the word of God. That's the focus. And so this episode in the beginning of your Bible not only gives us an idea of how suffering came into the world, but it serves as an example for all of humanity to follow. It says, obey God and it'll go well for you. But disobey and suffering is sure to follow. That's really the basic theme underlying the entire Old Testament narrative. Obey and it'll go well for you. Disobey and suffering will abound. And guess what? Mankind chooses to disobey God. We choose suffering again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. But don't forget... Our topic today isn't just on suffering, it's on growth through suffering. Here's what's crazy about what we're going to see today. Though mankind, though 
we are excessively rebellious. We don't listen to the word of God. We are disobedient creatures. Though we choose suffering and suffering again and again and again for ourselves, God is gracious. And even as we suffer, he uses that suffering to grow us and to draw us to himself. God is gracious. I hope you see that today. Suffering is a bad thing. It's, a, it's the consequence of our own rebellion, but God graciously uses that consequence of our own rebellion to grow us and to draw us closer to himself, to make us more like him and even to redeem us. And so, like I said, I've selected a few different stories from the narrative of scripture that highlight this theme of growth through suffering. And I've chosen four different types or, or flavors of growth through suffering. So we'll look at uh, these four types of suffering. And for each, you'll see, I'll give a definition. I'll define it. We'll talk about the person who goes through that suffering. I'll describe the suffering that they experience and then the growth they experience as a result of God's use of suffering in their lives. Okay, so that'll be the general format for the day. So let's begin with what I'll call trial and error suffering, which is what we see particularly in the life of Judah. Of course, you can get lots of examples for all these different types of suffering, but we'll begin with the life of Judah, the son of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, and who's the son of Abraham. So trial and error suffering. Uh, trial and error suffering is when God uses the suffering that comes from the consequences of our own sins to change us. So sometimes God uses the suffering that comes as a consequence of our own sins to grow us, to convince us that the current way I'm dealing with things just isn't working, right? So if you've ever sinned and you suffered as a result of your own sin, God sometimes uses that suffering to convince you and maybe you shouldn't do that again. And rarely does it take just one installment of that suffering, right? We sin again and again and again and suffer the same consequences again and again and again. What do they say the, the definition of insanity is? Repeating the same action and expecting a different result. Sometimes God uses suffering through trial and error to bring us to this conclusion. I can't keep repeating the same action. I can't keep living my life the same way. Something's got to change, and I think it's me. That's how God used suffering, particularly in the life of Judah. So let's talk about the person of Judah. Judah was the fourth son of a lady named Leah, okay? Now, Leah was the, the wife of Jacob, but she's not the wife he wanted. Jacob fell in love with this woman named Rachel. He saw Rachel, he was like, whoa, there's no one like that. In all the earth, I'm going to marry her. And her father goes, well, I've got this older daughter, Leah, who's got something weird with her eye. No one's going to want to marry her. And so on the wedding night, he swaps the girls out, swaps the women out on the wedding night. And so Jacob wakes up next to who he thought was Rachel, but it's Leah. And so poor Leah, you know, the whole, he's like, oh, no, not this one. It's really sad. And so then he eventually, he marries Rachel as well. The Bible doesn't condone polygamy, but it just describes that it happens. And so he marries Rachel as well, but Rachel can't have any children. So Jacob's got this, his beloved wife. He wants to have beloved offspring through Rachel, but she can't have kids. But Leah's having babies all the time. She's like, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe after the second one, he'll love me. Maybe the third one, he'll make me love me. And Jacob just doesn't care. He's just like, I just want a baby with Rachel, okay? So it's, the Bible's like a soap opera sometimes. And so 
Finally, uh, so Leah has her fourth son. His name is Judah, okay? So the fourth son of the kind of unwanted wife. And then finally, Rachel says the Lord opened her womb and she has two sons. Her first son's name is Joseph. We'll talk about him in a second. And then the second son is Benjamin. And these are Jacob's beloved children from his beloved wife, Rachel. That's going to that's gonna come into play in a second. One more thing. Joseph was so beloved, this firstborn son, that Jacob made him a robe of many colors. We all know Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat or whatever. I've never seen that, but people reference it to me all the time. Uh, is it a movie? Is it a play? I don't care. Uh, and so he makes him this robe of many colors, and it's this sign of his favoritism. It's a symbol of Jacob says, this is my beloved son, my firstborn son, from my first love wife. Uh, and so that's going to come into play. So let's talk about the suffering. One day, Joseph is in the fields, this beloved son of Jacob, in the fields with all the brothers, which is a mixture of brothers from servants, uh, you know, who are had with these women who are servants, had with Rachel, some with Leah. And so you got all these sons, but they all know their job is to protect the beloved, protect this beloved son. That's why he's got a pretty coat on. So everyone knows, let's make sure he's okay, because that's our father's Desire. Some, there's, not, there's a lot missed in translation culturally there, but uh, that's their job. They have a duty to protect this beloved son. Judah, particularly, he has this duty. This fourth son of Leah has a duty to protect this beloved son of Jacob. But that's not what happens. They are jealous of Joseph. And so they kind of conspire together. And they're like, let's kill him. And Judah goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Why don't we make some money off of it? Why, we don't want to be responsible for a man's death. Let's sell him into slavery and let... Let him die as a slave. That's Judah. That's his brilliant plan, okay? And so that's exactly what they do. They say, let's sell him into slavery. Let's take his robe. Let's dip it in animal's blood, and we'll take it to, to our father and say, hey, Father Jacob, with many sons. Hey, Jacob, we, uh, you know, we don't know what happened. All we have is this bloody coat of your son. He must have gotten torn apart by an animal, okay? And so that's exactly what they do. And Judah sells his brother into slavery, lies to his father, and fails to protect this beloved son as he was supposed to. And we see in the narrative of, of Genesis, everything goes downhill from there for Judah. Uh, because he, he then disobeys his father and he marries a Canaanite woman. That's a big no-no. He's not supposed to do that. And the text explicitly says a few chapters before he shouldn't do that. And then it says, and he married a Canaanite woman. And then all three of Judah's sons are wicked as a result. Uh, you know, you marry someone who cares nothing for the God of Israel. It's no surprise that your sons care nothing for the God of Israel. So he has these three wicked sons, and God actually took two of their lives because they were so excessively evil. Okay, so I'm describing. There's a lot of suffering going on in Judah's life. Then, if it's not bad enough, so he's already got this distance between him and his father. If you've ever lied to someone you care about and you just keep trying to hold up this lie, you imagine how that eats you up inside? Especially if you like sold your brother into slavery and then told your father that he's dead. I mean, Judah's got a, some counseling in Judah's future, okay? And so he's at this low point of suffering, distance from God, distance from his family. And then he gets his daughter-in-law pregnant because she thought, uh, he thought that she was a prostitute. Okay, so that's Judah's character. If we just want to know what's Judah like, what are the consequences of a sin? 
Basically, he had promised uh, one of his sons to this, this woman, Tamar, but he didn't fulfill that promise. And she said, hey, I need to have some offspring, and so I'll just take it upon myself to, to get some, and I will dress up like a prostitute. And I know Judah's the type of guy who's going to go out searching for a prostitute. That's just the type of guy Judah is, and her plan works. And so he's distant from his father. His two sons have died. And then it's found out that he got his own daughter-in-law pregnant because he thought she was a prostitute. His reputation is completely destroyed because of his immorality. That's deep suffering that none of us in this room understand. Okay, this is the total death of yourself. But here's the growth. After getting his daughter-in-law pregnant, you know, he's in the depths of this suffering, we see he has this moment of transformation. And I have the passage there in your notes from Genesis 38. But see the change there in bold. Uh, when, when Judah hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and no one knows who the father is, he wants to burn her, okay? He wants to execute her. You see that? Bring her out and let her be burned. So he wants to execute her. But then just a few sentences later, after his daughter-in-law demonstrates that actually Judah is the father of these children of immorality, she's pregnant with twins, we see a radical shift, a radical confession. So look there in bold. She is more righteous than I. This immoral woman who I just said should be burned, let's bring her out, so let's burn her publicly so everybody can know she's a terrible person, says she's more righteous than me. And from that point on in the Genesis narrative, everything about Judah's life begins to change. And it sort of culminates in, in history, sort of repeating itself. Jacob has to entrust his second beloved son. Joseph, for all as Jacob knows, is dead. Though he's not, he's thriving in Egypt. His second son, Benjamin, Jacob has to entrust Benjamin to be cared for by his other sons. His beloved son, Benjamin. And once again, Judah has this duty to protect and keep safe this beloved son of his father. And whereas the last time he sold Jacob's beloved son into slavery to die, and then he lied to his father, and he elevated his desires over the commands of his father and the commands of God, and he elevated his life over the life of his brother, this time look what he says in Genesis 43, 8 through 9. Judah said to Israel, that's Jacob, he's got two names, Bible's sometimes confusing, said to Jacob, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. There's this famine that's trying to get food for them. Send the boy with me so that we might not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And what he's saying there is if I don't bring back Benjamin, you can kill me. You can end my life. I will lay down my life. So this time he submits any sort of jealousy, submits whatever his desires may be. He submits his way to his father's. He prioritizes his father's desires over his own. And he doesn't throw away his brother's life to enrich his own. This time he promises to lay down his life in order to protect the life of his brother. So we see Judah is transformed from a prideful and wicked embarrassment to a humble servant of his father. And that transformation only came from a life that was filled with suffering and regret as a result of his own mistakes. So God used Judah's arrogance to make him 
humble. And as the book of Genesis concludes, there's even this moment where Jacob blesses his sons and Judah actually receives the greatest blessing, this forgotten fourth son of Leah. Jacob says that kings will come from his line, that all of Judah's brothers will one day bow down to him as an honor. He'll be this authority figure over them. And from Judah's line, including the twins that he had from his immorality with his daughter-in-law Tamar, we get the ancestry line of King David. And eventually you'll see Matthew really draw attention to it in his genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew We get not only the ancestry line from this immorality with Tamar, we get King David, and that leads us to eventually King Jesus. So that's trial and error suffering. Let's uh, talk about the other side of the Judah story, which is the story of Joseph, which involves sacrificial suffering. And I need to pick up the pace here. (laughs) Sacrificial suffering is when God allows a person to suffer in order to bring blessing to others to bring blessing to others. Joseph, while Judah was out there sinning and doing everything wrong and suffering as a result, Joseph, from everything that Genesis tells us, was walking in righteousness and obedience, and yet, just like Judah, was also suffering. And Joseph's life shows us that suffering isn't always used by God to grow you. Rather, sometimes God allows you to walk through suffering in order to bless other people. Right? A lot of growth comes out of Joseph's suffering, but it's the citizens of Egypt, and it's the Pharaoh, and it's Joseph's wicked brothers who reap the benefits, not Joseph. So let's talk about Joseph. We've already covered a little bit about him. He's this beloved firstborn of Jacob and Rachel, and he was also very righteous. He was a contrast from his brothers. Genesis sort of paints Jacob's sons out to be disobedient kids who do whatever they want, He thinks they're in this field and they're actually just disobeying and they're somewhere else. But Joseph, he was obedient. You know, yes, sir, no, sir. He went where Jacob told him to go, did exactly what Jacob told him to do. So Joseph seems to be this righteous man. So don't ever automatically assume that when a person's suffering, it's because they're in sin. Just look at Joseph. And so his brothers despised him. They sold him into slavery. And this begins Joseph's suffering. He's sold to a man named Potiphar, who's this high-ranking official, and he's a, he's a slave for Potiphar. But he blesses Potiphar's household. Things are going really well whenever Joseph is in charge of anything. And so Potiphar is blessed, but then Potiphar's wife uh, takes a liking to Joseph, thinks he's very attractive, and tries to uh, convince him to have relations with her. Kids, you can look it up later. And so <clears throat> Joseph refuses Right, And so she makes up this story about how he ran into a room, tried to molest her, and Joseph's reputation is destroyed as a result. Who's going to have more of a hearing, this wife of a high-ranking official or the slave that they just purchased, right? And so his reputation is completely destroyed by Potiphar's wife, and he just goes to prison. He just has to eat it. You know, you don't get to go to court. Oh, me as a slave, I want to... I want to, you know, have my, my day in court against this very wealthy individual. That doesn't happen. He just has to eat it. He even has a chance of maybe getting out a little bit earlier. He meets this cupbearer and this baker. He interprets their dreams, and he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer favorably. And he basically says on the day as this cupbearer is getting out uh, of prison and being reinstalled to work for Pharaoh, Joseph goes, hey, remember me that I'm not the 
you know, the rapist that everyone said that I am. Remember me, I'm a good guy. I can, I can be helpful sometimes. And the cupbearer is like, I'm gonna totally remember you, man. You've been such a help to me. And then he forgets. The narrative in Genesis says, for two years he forgot. So Joseph's just sitting in prison. Can't do anything about his reputation. He's just stuck, suffering in prison. But eventually the cupbearer remembers him after two years, introduces him to Pharaoh, and through the interpretation of this dream, Joseph ends up sort of predicting this famine. God gives him this interpretation. He's able to predict a famine. Pharaoh, you're gonna have seven years of plenty, so don't throw big parties during the seven years of plenty. Instead, store it up because seven years after that are gonna be one of famine. And so in order to take care of yourself during the famine, store up now. And so the Pharaoh's like, hey, this guy's great. He's very wise. Joseph ends up being the second in command in all of Egypt. And so we see the Pharaoh is blessed. And then the Egyptians are blessed as a result during this famine. Everyone else around the world is, is struggling through this famine, but the Egyptians have plenty of grain. So Joseph suffers and the Egyptians are blessed. You may be tempted to think that that's the end of his suffering. Once he's, he's elevated the second, you know, second in command over all of Egypt, you go, oh, Joseph's done suffering. No, he's still away from his father, who he loves. Don't forget, he got ripped away from his family and sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph, throughout the narrative in Genesis, continues to say things like, I was stolen away from my land. Talks about how he longs to leave Egypt. He doesn't want to be second in command in Egypt. He doesn't want to be in Egypt at all. He wants to get back to the land of his fathers. And so we see Joseph sold into slavery, his reputation destroyed. He suffers in prison. He longs to return to his family, who completely destroyed his life. It's a level of suffering that none of us can really comprehend. But what's the growth? Throughout Joseph's suffering, the people around him are blessed. Potiphar, the cupbearer, Pharaoh, all of Egypt. And then comes the culmination of the story. When the famine's so bad, Joseph's family has to leave their land and come get food in Egypt. And when they do, Joseph meets them. And he reveals, it's this big reveal, I'm still alive. And his brothers are terrified. They're like, oh no, <laughs> this is the, my worst nightmare. They're convinced he's gonna kill them, exact his revenge. But instead, look at what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 15 through 21. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? Why did all this happen? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So how did God use Joseph's suffering? To bless others, specifically to bless evil doers. I mean, how gracious is our God? Joseph suffered, his life was ruined. He was cut off from his father so that both the wicked sons of Abraham and the wicked Gentile Egyptians might be blessed through his suffering. So if you're paying attention, that's an obvious foreshadowing of a future Joseph who would be cut off from his father so that the children of Abraham, the children of Jacob, the children of Gentiles might be blessed through his suffering. But we'll uh, get to him in a second. Let's talk about God glorifying suffering and consider the life of Job. Because you can't talk about suffering without talking about Job. So 
God glorifying suffering. God glorifying suffering is when God allows a person to suffer in order to magnify the glory of God. So whereas Judah grew as a result of his suffering and other people grew as a result of Joseph's suffering, the suffering Job experienced was simply used by God to magnify the glory of God above all other glory. That's what this story, all 42 chapters of it, one of the longest books in the Bible, that's the whole point, to say that God is far more glorious. He's beyond our understanding. His ways are not our ways. His purposes are not our purposes. God is glorious and his glory surpasses all other glory. So let's talk about the person Job. Job was, like Joseph, a righteous man. Listen to how God describes Job, okay, in Job 1.8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God said that, put that on your resume. You can't, but Job could. That's not an empty compliment. God is saying that Job was an outstanding and exceedingly righteous man, more righteous by his own merit than any of us in this room. And not only that, Job was incredibly wealthy, more wealthy than any of us in this room. Yes, here, even in McKinney, Texas, I know, it's hard to fathom, more wealth than this. But Satan comes to God and God says, have you ever considered my servant, Job, how, look how righteous he is? And Satan says, of course he's righteous, God, because you give him so much wealth. Of course, that's the only reason he obeys you. He loves the things you give him. So he, he prays, he does all the things you ask him to do because you give him stuff. He doesn't love you, God. He loves the things you give him. And God says, okay, well, let's find out. Is God's glory enough to build an entire faith on or when you lack this blessing from God, does a person's faith crumble? So God says, let's find out. And so it begins the suffering of Job. Over a few chapters, Job goes from being the wealthiest man around with this beautiful family, everything you could ever want, and then all of that is taken away. His children are all dead. All of his wealth is decimated, his, his livestock, his crops, everything gone in an instant. And then God even permits Satan to inflict Job's health. And so he gets these like sores all over from his head to his feet. He's like using a rock to scratch because, you know, it itches. But here's something I don't think, because uh, his whole life, it's destroyed. But there's something even worse I see in Job I don't think many of us consider, which is what the entire, what the book of Job spends the most time covering. What suffering does, does the entire book of Job focus on the most? Job's terrible friends. Job, that is the culmination of Job's suffering. He has terrible friends as he's enduring the suffering. Many of us could suffer awful circumstances, but few of us could endure friends like Job's. Job will say, I'm in so much pain. <laughs> My life is only misery. I'm hurt. I'm suffering. And they say as they look down their noses, down at Job, well, I've never seen God, you know, treat a good person like this. Surely you've done something wrong. Surely you've got to be the one to blame. Now, the Bible's already told us that Job is righteous. 
actually throughout the whole narrative tells us he's not to blame. He didn't do anything to cause his suffering. But the majority of the dialogue in the book of Job is his friends trying to convince him that he's responsible. Why else would anyone experience this sort of difficulty? God doesn't treat a good person like this. That's their reasoning. What's pretty entertaining in a really sort of, I guess, a dark way, I think it's entertaining, is how Job's friends, they just grow more and more hardened against their friend. He's like, no, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. And they just grow more and more hardened because at the beginning, they seem to, they don't know why Job's at fault. They say, they're just convinced that he is. He must be at fault. God doesn't treat righteous people this way. So you must have done something wrong. Think about it, Job. You must have done something. But as the story goes on, they become these sin vigilantes coming out with all sorts of examples to build their case. And uh, my favorite is in Job 22, five through 11. This is Eliphaz. He says, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and you've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You've sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. Now remember, the Bible already told us Job didn't do anything wrong. So can you imagine that amount of suffering? There are few things worse than suffering like Job has suffered, but then adding terrible friends on top of that, especially yeah, such deep suffering circumstances. And just as an aside, I think, uh, I think nothing better uh, characterizes the spirit of evangelical churches today, like our own today than Job's friends. Just get on Twitter, Someone says something like, God loves the poor. And people are like, do you love the poor? What have you done? What have you done for the poor? Who do you know that's poor? When's the last time you did something poor? Do you even know someone who's poor? A bunch of sin vigilantes. It's like a sport trying to poke at everyone else's sin, not self-aware enough to see your own. So keep watch of yourselves when talking to others about their wrong or their sin, especially when they're coming to you, telling you that they're suffering. Lest you join the ranks of Job's friends and at best multiply their suffering. So Job experiences abundant suffering, spends his time contending with his so-called friends and crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you done this to me, God? Why did you even let me be born if my life was just gonna turn out this way? And then God speaks to him. God answers him, comes to him in a terrifying whirlwind, okay? That's scary. And here we see the growth. God answers Job's complaints. And really the first question God asks is, who are you, Job, to question me? Who are you to say that my life shouldn't be going this way? This isn't, I had a path laid out before me. This isn't the trajectory. This is a derailment from the path that was set before me. God says, no, 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 I'm the creator, you're the creature. You were made for my glory, not the other way around. It's poetic, it's profound, it's lengthy, God's discourse. He sort of, he really lets Job have it. I'm God, you're not. I'm in charge of everything, you're not. I'm infinitely wise, you're not. It's a humbling, it's a humbling read, but then Job Answers in Job 42, one through six. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
and he's quoting God, things, questions God has asked him. God said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job answers, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So how does Job grow through his suffering? He learns that there's nothing more glorious than God. There's no news better than God being the glorious and sovereign God who's in charge of everything. And in all of his suffering, Job is comforted, comforted by this. My suffering was purposed by God for his glory, and now I see it. My ears had heard that you do stuff that bring glory to your name, but now I've seen it with my own eyes. I felt it with my scars on my skin. I remember Satan said, God's glory isn't enough to keep someone faithful to him. They'll only be as faithful as long as God gives them stuff to make them glorious. But Job's suffering shows us that Satan is wrong. When everything God had blessed Job with was taken away, one thing didn't change, and it was that God is glorious. God is sovereign, that God is wise, that he reigns above all others and there are none more glorious than he. There's no plan better than God's. There's no counsel better than God's and no man can look at the trajectory of his life and say, this is the way it should have been. God's glory isn't attached to our circumstances. So sometimes God uses suffering to awaken us to the reality of the surpassing glory of God compared to all other glory. So that like Job, you can say, I'd rather lose everything of mine so long as God is on the throne and so long as God is glorious than for me to get to keep everything and lose my God who's in charge of everything. So Job's suffering magnified the glory of God. One last quick one, and then we'll talk about the true and better Job who glorify God through his own suffering. By the way, you can submit questions. I know for sure. <laughs> of course, I shouldn't say that. We'll have time for questions at the end. <laughs> it was when I practiced. Okay, dependent suffering. Quickly, dependent suffering is when God uses suffering to call people to depend on him for justification rather than themselves. So this is similar to the suffering Judah experienced where he learned to change his behavior in order to not keep experiencing the same suffering and the same consequences of his sin, except we see with the nation of Israel and in our own lives as well that no amount of behavior modification will ever save you from your sins. As the, uh, the New City Catechism, a great resource I'd recommend to you all, uh, as it says, or at least my paraphrased version to make it easier for my kids, I say, will God allow our sins to go unpunished? The answer is no. God is righteously angry at our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. And the next question is, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? The answer is yes. God reconciles us to himself by a redeemer. Israel believed that God reconciled them to himself by their obedience to his commands which they were constantly failing to obey. And so God again and again and again used suffering to draw them to himself for justification, draw them to himself as their justifier for their wrongdoing. And so the people 
sinful, constantly and consistently disobedient Israel. And the suffering he brought them through is God's constantly saying, obey my commands and it'll go well for you. Disobey my commands and this suffering will abound. And Israel's like, we got it, deal. They said that at the bottom of Mount Sinai and then they made a golden calf and worshiped an idol. They say it throughout the book of Judges and over and over they start worshiping foreign gods. They, they never do, they never obey. They're like, totally God, we got it. And then they, they disobey immediately. Basically, from beginning to end, the Old Testament is filled with the cycle of God commanding, Israel promising, and then breaking that promise and suffering as a result. And so the suffering of Israel, it's, it sort of culminates, it's best, it's best exemplified in their exile when they're in exile in Babylon or when Jerusalem is obliterated and taken captive by, captive by the Assyrians. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel, multiple times, they were exiled or they're submitted to the rule of wicked nations that despise God and despise God's people as a result of their disobedience to God. And the prophets will say exactly that. This is because of our disobedience. Repent of your disobedience and God will restore us. He'll restore Israel. And they're like, shut up. And they kill the prophets, right? And so injustice and suffering abounds as promised. But after such a long history of rebellion, God begins to call on Israel to depend on him to provide a solution, to break this cycle of disobedience. And the solution is a redeemer, a Messiah, who will obey God's law where Israel has failed. And depending on him is what will justify them. Depending on him, that's what's gonna remove their many sins, their iniquities from them. And so here we see the growth. The growth is foreshadowed by the prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah, Malachi. The growth is foreshadowed that one day Israel will depend on God to justify them rather than their own obedience. So God used Israel's many sufferings to demonstrate that they can never be the ultimate solution. No one obeys the law of God perfectly. And so long as that is true, no amount of white knuckling the faith will bring about the righteousness that God commands. Therefore, they have one, only one choice. Depend on God for mercy. Depend on, on God to provide a solution for his people. Cry out and depend on God to save them, to redeem them, to rescue them from their suffering and to save them from their sin. And long for that day when God sends his chosen redeemer. This redeemer who would, like Isaiah 53, four through six says, this is him talking about this redeemer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, peace with God, by the way, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this brings us, this foreshadows and points to what all of these sufferings pointed to. Listen to all the suffering there in that passage in Isaiah and how their suffering is being exchanged for the, the suffering of another. They all point to the greater suffering of Jesus. So in the suffering of Jesus, we see the fulfillment of all the types of suffering we've discussed. We see that like Judah, Jesus suffered the consequences of sin 
and did what was right by submitting himself to the desires of his father. But it wasn't the consequences of his own sin that Jesus suffered. Jesus was guiltless. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And then like Joseph, he suffered unjustly in order that others would be blessed. So that both the children of Jacob and the children of the Gentiles, that's all of you guys, would be blessed so that all nations would be blessed through his suffering. And like Job, when Jesus suffered for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God, he said in John 17, one, Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Like Job, Jesus was guilty of nothing. He suffered with terrible friends. Hey, pray for me while we're here in this garden and they took a nap. Hey, this is, the, this is what I'm doing. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to suffer. And Jesus, or Peter says, no, you're not. You don't know what you're talking about. He says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus suffered with terrible friends. He was guilty of nothing, and yet his life was poured out to demonstrate that God is the only one worthy of glory, that the glory of God surpasses all momentary affliction. And finally, like Israel, Jesus is suffering. It invites us to depend on the Father's provision of a Redeemer. Again, the New City Catechism says that God reconciles us to himself by a Redeemer, and then it asks, who is the Redeemer? To which the answer is, the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us to depend on him in suffering depend on him to rescue us from our sins and depend on his example of obedience and suffering. Because if Christ suffered, the king of all glory, we should expect to suffer as well as his disciples. We should not be surprised when we suffer, Jesus says in Matthew and also says in 1 Peter. Rather, we should examine the growth that comes through suffering. How suffering trains us in righteousness like it did Judah. How suffering blesses others like it did with Joseph. How suffering glorifies God like Job's suffering. And it pushes us into the arms of our God on whom everything we have depends. As we consider the suffering of Jesus, it encourages us not to feel so fearful of suffering. Not to feel like suffering is something we have to avoid at all costs. Rather, we see that God is gracious in our suffering. He's purposeful in suffering. He uses suffering to grow us, to change us, to bless, and even to redeem us. That's the hope that you have today as you suffer. But ultimately, we have an even greater hope. As the hymn says, we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That one day all suffering will end. In the end, Jesus has promised that he will return and he'll unite us eternally with himself so that we might dwell in the presence of our God forever. Which means that things will go back to how they were in the garden as God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Because the garden, remember, wasn't a place of suffering. It was a place filled with delight and rest and satisfaction. But all of that was lost when we disqualified ourselves from God's presence. But through Christ, our Redeemer will be raised from the dead like he was. We'll be given new glorified bodies. That word glorified simply means this. Bodies qualified to dwell eternally in the presence of God. 
when you qualify a person to live in the presence of the source of life, death is vanquished. And when you qualify a person to live in the presence of the source of all delight, pain is forever removed. And when you qualify a person to live in the presence of the source of rest, their distress finally comes to an end. When Jesus comes and raises us and qualifies us so that we can dwell in God's presence through the suffering redeemer, all suffering will be brought to an end. And so our ultimate hope, as Revelation 21 says, is this. One day we will see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, this dwelling place of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Isn't that interesting? The first word of suffering that we found in Genesis is the last word of suffering in the book of Revelation. No pain, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. So may we suffer today with this end in mind. Let's pray, and we'll take time for questions. Father, we thank you that you're good, that you're sovereign. <laughs> you, you aren't just the source of good, that you are good. Being near to you is goodness for us. We'll even sing that later today. Thank you for your, your grace, that the consequence of our own rebellion is the very means by which you transform us into your image and the image of your son who you sent to redeem us. I pray that our hope would be in Christ not in ourselves. Uh, our hope wouldn't even be in how we suffer. We would just look to and find hope in how Christ suffered on our behalf, that we would glorify you. Transform us, God, through suffering, whatever we're going through, in whatever way that we're suffering. We, I pray that we would know that it's purposeful, that we know that you're good in it and that you're sovereign, uh, not as some sort of throwaway Christian platitude, but as something we need in the midst of suffering, that you would be an anchor to our souls, that you would transform us, that you would bless those around us, you would glorify yourself, and that we would depend on you. It's in Christ's name that we come before you, that we find our way into your presence, uh, and that we pray. Amen.